Hello, kiddos. Welcome to another fucking horror podcast. I'm Monique Sanchez. I'm Amy Trayton. And we are bringing you a very special... Blizzard winter edition. Yeah, <laughs> winter edition. We're snowed in. We are snowed in. <laughs> um, if you live in half of the United States right now, there's a fucking blizzard raging out. So and it's no joke. It's not just like, oh, here we're, here's a little flurry for you. Like, no, yeah. I literally watched a UPS truck get stuck in front of my building yesterday, and it took him almost a full two hours to get out. So holy fuck! Yes, I literally watched him do it. Where I was just like, oh, this guy's this guy's stuck. He's not gonna he's not gonna get out. And then I just like watched him back up and like almost hit a car, go forward, and then I just watched him give up. And I was like. That is the correct response. You really, there's no solution for this. No one's on the roads. You have no help. Just accept your fate, basically. Ugh, I'm sorry. Poor sir. bunny. <laughs> I know. I know. I got to a point where I was like, I should like bring him hot chocolate or something. Like I'm genuinely worried. And then I looked out the window and he was gone. And I was like, okay, he, he got it under control. He figured it out. Yeah. I remember my first year that I went to college almost oh, two so decades ago. Year, so last yeah. year, obviously. So last year. Hey. Exactly. I went to college in Long Island and there was this blizzard that was like, four feet of snow oh my god fuck it was so much and I remember you know being this fucking Cuban chick from Miami Beach my first winter there's four feet of snow outside and I remember telling my parents and they were completely traumatized hearing the story and I remember that they're like you have to get winter boots you have to get winter boots and I got these like moon men up to my shin winter boots that I basically have never used again until this blizzard. Oh, fuck it. All right. They came in handy. That's fine. <laughs> they came in handy. That's so, fine. I feel yeah. that. I The year I moved to New Hampshire from Florida, right after college, same thing. It was the worst winter they've had in like 20 fucking years. And yeah. it snowed three fucking feet. No joke. The first time I ever like got caught in a blizzard. And I just, I didn't even believe that was really possible because I'd never seen it before. So to just like, literally wake up to my entire car because I had a Mini Cooper being covered in snow. Oh my God. I was like, I was like, I don't know what to do. I literally was just like, okay. And I'm not going out. Cool. You had a fucking Mini Cooper? Oh my God. Yes. I have pictures of me like standing beside it, literally like with snow up to almost my hips. Thank God there was a, they had like these small plows that would come in just like our little parking lot area that I guess like the building maintenance people kept on hand. And he was so nice. And he realized I literally had like four feet of snow behind my car to clear four feet wide and tall. So he like pushed a bunch of it like out of the way. So I really didn't have to scoop that much. And I was just like, thank you so much. You saved me probably an hour's worth of shoveling. And I could not thank you more right now. Like such a nice person. Wherever you are, plow man, thank you. You saved me so much work. (laughs) Mr. Plow. Mr. Plow. I have to say, I watched in and of itself (gasps) tell me everything it took every molecule of willpower within me not to text you afterwards because I wanted you to have my genuine reaction in person as in person as we can get I absolutely fucking loved it oh isn't it so good it's so good you're right I don't know how I would have explained it to anybody I watched it Johnny I forgot (laughs) full disclosure I forgot to mention that there was magic in it And he, he like literally gives me the like side eye of like, are you fucking for real? Did you put on a magic show? And I was like, um, I was supposed to warn you. I forgot. I know. I was like, I'm sorry. I forgot to warn you. There's magic, by the way. Just FYI. Yeah. Because if you don't mention it, then you get the like, what the fuck is this? It's like, (laughs) 
but it's not a magic show. There's magic in it, but it's not a magic show. I definitely got the what the fuck look, but at the end of it, he did enjoy it. We both enjoyed it. I cried. He did not. He was a strong, tough man about it, but the fucking, I don't want this, this probably won't reveal too much. The letters was the oh, thing yeah. that got me. I fucking like nonstop cried during that part. Like yeah. not sobbing, but just like tears running down my face, wiping yeah. constantly. It was, it was really good. It was yeah. really good. I'm going to show you one thing. Hold on. Here's my brick. Oh my God. You do have the golden brick. I love that my card. so much. My card. Monique was right. Everybody go watch it immediately. It was so fucking good. I can't even, re- I am so jealous. I never got to see it in person because yeah. I just, the power of it, I can't even imagine because it was powerful just watching the stage production. So to actually be there and see everything happen live, the ship's log, quote unquote, also, I thought it was very cool. And I, I'm My, saying that doesn't really give it anything away, but that was just the coolest fucking idea for a show like that. My ride or die, Nellie had the ship's log. No! Yeah. Nellie! Oh, I would have I would have been an insane person and taken a picture of every single page with my phone because I wouldn't she, have had the time to go through it. And I would have wanted to go through it and seen everything. I'm not positive, but I think when she had it, she had it from a matinee to an evening performance. Oh, oh, too much. So she didn't, so she didn't have a whole day. Oh, I couldn't handle that. So good though. So cool. I like, uh, there's no, there are no words really. Like it's one of those things like you can't really explain the power of it. Uh, and the end is just so satisfying. It's just wonderful. It was just lovely. And you're right. it, It really makes you think about how you define yourself. Yeah. And it makes me so happy to hear this because I saw it in New York when it played live multiple times. I would have to have gone multiple times too. Yeah. And it's, it is the most I have ever paid. The final performance is the most I have ever paid for a theatrical experience, including Hamilton, because I was like, I have to be there to see how this ends, like to be there, like at the last night in the film, when you see Tim Gunn, he was three bros behind me. Oh, really? Oh yeah, me yeah. and Johnny literally had a moment where he was like, is that? I said, Tim Gunn, you're bet your fucking ass, that's Tim yeah. Gunn. I was like, Make fuck it, it work. everyone love this, yes. Yes, and I remember the big thing that happens at the end with the cards and the audience, because it is still a magic show, kind of. Yes. And the thing is, ultimately that's a misdirection for the final trick. And I knew that I was like, I can, and I was front row and I was like, I can easily see how they set up this final trick. But I was like, you know, one, it's more interesting and magical to me to see these people change by being seen yes, for who they are. And I just like living in a world where there's magic. Yeah. I refuse to watch to see how it happened. And I, I spent I was, I think three out of the four performance, no, two out of, half of the performances that I went to, I was in the front row and I could have very easily watched how the last setup happened. But so I I went with, you know, I I told lots of friends of mine in New York to go and they went and they all had the same experience. And then it premiered at the Montclair Film Festival this past year. And then so my, one of my best friends, Nellie and I went, it was a drive-in, which I'm like, this is all my fucking dreams. Uh, (laughs) Yes. Because I don't know if I've ever mentioned on the podcast, I am not of this time. Like, don't let the podcast fool you. I am so in the wrong era. And me being in a drive-in is me living my best motherfucking life. Of course, yes. 
so going to a film premiere in a drive-in is a dream I didn't know I had <laughs> until I experienced it. We invited a couple people to split the car with us who hadn't seen it and they just were not in a place to receive the movie. I can understand. Because, because you definitely have to be, yes. Like I was prepared for it via you and it really was yeah. impactful to me because of that, I think. Yeah, they were just not in a place to receive it and were not into it. At uh, all. Like at all. Okay, so, even his like card trick, quote unquote tricks, were amazing. Like the control he had over that deck, that's not magic. That is fucking like skill. a tactile thing. Yes, that was amazing to me. That, except for the part where he's like, it took me eight years literally just to like perfect the shuffle. Girl, that thing. made me want to start like fucking trying that because he literally knows where every single card is in that fucking deck at yeah. all times. And that is insane to me. That is an insane fucking skill for somebody to have. Exactly. That also, he yeah. very clearly was like rigging fucking underground poker games, it seemed, in his life at some point. So I can oh, confirm see, that. Yeah, he actually has a book coming out. I believe it's called Depending on How because I don't know if it's either a moral man or a moral man. An amoral man, okay, yes. Right. Oh, so, okay. And maybe that's the, the play here we're doing a little bit? Like you it don't could know be, you, what it is? Yeah, but it's definitely stories of his life. And I know that his like being a card, the like a- Card sharp, I think is what it's called, I guess. It, would he be that if he's the one dealing? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a gambler. I just got into stocks and it's the most stressful thing in my life because I'm not a gambler. <laughs> and that's what it is. Gambling. Yes. <laughs> Gambling. So I was concerned that this really beautiful thing was just an experience that if you didn't experience it live, you just weren't going to, it wasn't going to have an impact on you. But it just seemed like the people we went with were just not in a place to receive it because- other people I, are very affected by it. I think that's what it is. Happy. Yeah. No, I, I really liked it. I really enjoyed it. I would second your recommendation for anyone who has not seen it yet. Definitely go watch it. I'm so happy. I'm so yes. happy that you saw it and that you oh, love it. It's so good. I loved it. I loved it's it. It's so good. And just sometimes you need a good cry, like just like a good cathartic. It was. It was very cathartic. I felt very, um, I felt very like centered and at peace afterwards, honestly. Yeah. The letters. Guys, the letters. Oh, they're so good. And so I, good. one of the performances I went to, the guy who got the letter was a total douche. Oh, in what well, sense? Well, he was acting like a guy at a magic show, right? Oh, he was okay, just yeah. being a dick. This is bullshit, yeah. He was like, oh, you know. Okay. Exactly. And then he gets the letter and he opens it and he starts sobbing. Yes! vindication <laughs> yeah and I mean and I knew people who had the captain's log and I that there's too many players and too many people that I know who didn't know the show prior to me who were chosen for things that it's not it's not rigged in that they're plants yes it's rigged obviously it has to be rigged in that he has control of the show yes and, and it's an obviously a, misdirection as you said yes of course but it's so good. Just like watch it. Just everyone really watch good. it. Yes. 
I will say at the gold brick part, Johnny was like, I mean, obviously they just sent a fucking PA to run that fucking brick down yeah. to wherever. Yeah. He's like, it's not magic. It's a fucking PA hauling ass fucking. He's like, there's like 30 minutes left of the show when they do it. He's like, they fucking. So what? They don't have to do that though. <laughs> I was like, and so he's doing his goddamn job. Don't shame him. He's not pretending that these things are actually because he starts the show saying everything I'm, you're going to see tonight is a lie. Yeah, that's how he starts the show. He's like, everything's a lie. So he's not like, Worst no, I'm literally that. he's not like I'm literally Jesus Christ. I turned water into wine. <laughs> I made this brick appear. Like He's like, of course, there's a PA who did it. But it still ended up there. And it's magical. And it's that thing of like, if you knew to go there, you would find the brick. And if you didn't, you would just be some schmo on your daily commute, walking by this golden brick, not even noticing it because it, it was nothing to you. It was nothing, yeah. Oh, it was so good. It's so good. I Thank mean, you for we, the recommendation. You're welcome. We could literally do a podcast. I know, well. literally. We could talk about this the whole time, honestly. <laughs> uh, you know, that's good. That makes me happy because I have been having these really intense nightmares. <gasps> Okay, I had a really freaky dream that is kind of like a reoccurring dream this week, which I don't dream a lot. So tell me about your nightmare because I that's actually very weird that you brought up like dreams in general to me, honestly. So same. I don't I dream very rarely. And when I do, it's usually a very intense nightmare. And often it'll be a period of time where it's like I have like four nightmares a night for like three months, like oh every God. single night. And so I'm like, fuck, is that what this is? And then I was just like, is it just because I'm doing a little too much of a deep dive into the macabre? Is this just like the occupational hazard? Yes. But now you just have nonstop nightmares because of all the horrifying shit we cover. Yeah. Which I think is very likely what it is. I am oh, no. putting my sleep and my health on the line for you, dear listener. <laughs> you appreciate this. <laughs> Um, Do you remember what your nightmare consisted of? Is it like I had details? I've had several in the last couple of in the last several days. I've had several nightmares. The Very one I violent. remember most, I wouldn't say so. The one I remember most is that I'm in some sort of war-torn place with my best friend from high school. And we have to try to sneak out of this place oh, sure. via like a, to get a flight out of it. And something happens where my best friend and I are separated and she's not with me at the airport and the flight is going to be leaving very shortly. And I don't know if she's going to be able to make it to get out of this very violent place. And it's also a thing of like, I don't know if I stay, I may not make it out either. And I might be murdered. It was very intense. It was very intense. She did make it at the 11th hour. Okay, good. Like, basically, it was a thing that I was kind of like, which I guess shows what a piece of shit I am. I was kind of like, bitch, you're on your own. I'm getting on this flight. <laughs> good luck. I gotta get on a war tour and wherever the fuck we are. Right. And she, like, ran in, like, that she got captured by people and then, like, escaped. That It was very, very intense. It was Holy very shit. intense. Yeah. That's the one I remember most. The other ones I don't really remember. Because I have, I'll have multiple in a night Ah, and I'll wake up and yeah, I'll wake up and I'll go fuck. And it was, and I've only been asleep for like 30 minutes and it was like a whole, yeah, yeah, yeah. A whole lifetime in that 30 minutes. Fuck. 
What about yours? I watch a plane crash happen right in front of me. Nope. I'm outside and I literally am like, what the fuck is that? What's happening? That looks like it's falling. And then I watch a plane crash into the ground and I've had several dreams in which this happens and it's always very upsetting to me, but I don't, like, I don't know what that means. I don't know. I don't I mean, prophetic dreams in any way, shape or form, but like, it's fucking weird. And it's weird that my dreams keep manifesting this thing. I'm never in the plane. It's never scary for me. I'm just watching it happen. One, I feel there would be something off if you didn't find planes falling out of the sky upsetting. Thank you. That's so, true. Yes. so there's that. Have you ever done, um, like looked up in a dream journal, what, what that means? No, I'm kind of afraid to. <laughs> Let's give it, it up. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> like, and dream. I have like some deep seated sexual fantasies. Is that what it's going to be? Oh, I mean, they all fucking say that. Like, like, everything my, is like, like a giant phallic shape in the sky, the fuselage. Okay. All right. Tell me, Monique. It's never good. It's not going to be like, oh, your life's going great. You're dreaming about planes crashing into the fucking ground. I mean, I don't know. Okay, you, you be the judge. Often dreaming of witnessing an aircraft crash signifies that your goals are too high. It may be the fact that you need to analyze your own ambitions and representations of life itself. It can imply that you need to overcome obstacles and reach them or alternatively risk using the strength to progress. I mean, I don't really, I'm not a particularly ambitious person, so I don't know about that, but like I get, I get, I do get a lot of anxiety and it's one of those things like I get a lot of anxiety about things I can't control. So yeah, that. I mean, then there's also this, this one website that the title is 16 dreams about plane crash, meaning an interpretation. So there's 16 different fucking interpretations of this. So, so it could be whatever you want it to be. Yeah. Like symbol of mental conflict, symbol of nearing life crisis, symbol of unrealistic goals and dreams, representation of anticipated failure, symbol of approaching oh danger. So nothing good. Representative obviously. of some uncertain situation, symbol of relief. Symbol yeah, of lack of control. Right. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the overarching thing is a, a lack of control or like a conflict or like the, like you think that there might be some sort of failure that you can't control. Okay, that actually kind of pans out. I can see that. There you go. Exactly. We also have a contest happening. Our oh, very shit. first. Yeah. Take advantage of it. Yes, it runs all of February. And the winner gets a free palm reading session from Universal Palm Street. And Ithaskun, who's the one who, it's her business, she so graciously donated it. And she's absolutely fucking incredible. I've gone to her multiple times. I've sent many friends to her multiple times. And they're completely floored by everything. She's just completely accurate. And it's one of those things that she claims she's not a psychic. And I don't believe her. <laughs> Like there's something else going on here. You're not just reading my palm. No, she's it's like, it literally good. is just written in your palm. And she's the type that she will give you year. Like she will be like, when you were 28, this thing happened. Like what? that level. So Shit. we're giving you a fucking free reading with Ethoskun from Universal Palms Tree. Holy fuck. And our very own Amy Traden is making you your very own custom spooky tote, which is very exciting. 
So what you have to do to enter the contest is you have to leave us a review on iTunes. And then you go to Instagram and you find our post that says another fucking contest, even though it's our first one. And then you tag a friend in that post. And then on March 1st, Amy and I will be announcing the winner. I can't wait to give you guys this prize. And I can't wait to announce the winner. And I can't wait to see all of your reviews. Yeah. Yeah. Plus whoever wins has to tell us what their, how their palm reading session went. I feel like that's, oh, go without saying, right? I mean, come on. Like, yes. I want to hear everything. Yes, I do too. Okay, good. Oh, yeah. So that's it on my end for the businessy stuff. Do you have any corrections or anything for last week? I don't believe so. Okay. I have a theory. Yeah. Your big bird story. Is it possible he was in Japan? Because Probably. hello is apparently the same in Mandarin and Cantonese, but hello in Japanese is Ohio Gazimus, which makes me think it's the shortened version Ohio. No. He's not? No, because I actually looked this up to make sure I was like, am I a huge asshole? And the movie is Big Bird in China. That's the name of the movie. Why is he saying Ohio then? I don't know, but he like goes around being like, Ohio, Ohio. And you could even, what? I looked it up. And I was like, there's no way that I completely fabricated this happening. And there's the clip. It's. I believe you that it's, I didn't look up whether he was actually in China. I just looked up what hello was in Cantonese. And when I realized it was not Ohio, I was like, all right, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. And then it occurred to me that despite my three years of Japanese, it didn't hit me right away. And it took a little bit that Ohio was probably the shortened form of Hokusai's. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There's, I was not aware of this. There's also Big Bird in Japan. Okay. 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 Oh, and Ohio means good morning in Japanese. Okay. Yes. So yeah, thank yes. you. Yes. That's a correction. Okay. Thank you for that. Because You're I was welcome. like, there is, I was like, I have seen Big Bird in China. That is He's definitely gone to China. Yes. So both of those things exist, but Ohio is good morning in Japanese. In Japanese, yes. And Big Bird does a whole scene where he tells, he says Ohio to everyone from Big Bird in Japan, the TV movie from 1988. Yay. We, we solved that. We solved it. We did. We actually solved it like real time kind of. So I enjoyed that. Yeah. That uh, covers me for the true crime. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Mystery solved. Mystery solved. I'm out. All right, so I don't know if it's really a spooky story this week, but uh-huh. I'm going to give you a little break from alien abductions <laughs> because I realized that while we've done ghosties and curses and aliens, we actually have yet to do a cryptid story. Fuck yes. So I felt that we wouldn't be doing our due diligence in covering the paranormal if we didn't bring at least one cryptid story to the table. So goddamn right. That's what I'm going to do this week. Yes. And originally I was going to do a Florida cryptid, but then I remembered all of our cryptids are kind of lame. We literally have mm. like skunk ape, which is just like Bigfoot in the Everglades. <laughs> or we have like a giant snake, which is a giant fucking snake. And we also have anaconda, like you get it. You, girl, literally the words, <laughs> you took them out of my mouth. <laughs> like there's really, like you get it. It's a giant fucking snake. It's terrifying. 
my anaconda don't it's want terrifying them. yeah it's that was one of those movies that was on hbo like seven times a day yes yes and my brothers and i watched every single showing of it and my brothers and i we're kind of like a movie quote household but it's very specific to me and my brothers and we have an affinity for like trash movies especially uh yes like please. great movies Thank and trash you. movies yeah are there any John- other kinds girl exactly <laughs> those are the two genres <laughs> right and there john voight in anaconda is like the the guy who like is the local who knows he's you know expert. who he's the expert and he has a a questionable spanish accent and there's a scene where he I think he like stabs a fish with a a spear from the boat. Like that's how he goes fishing or some shit like that. I don't know. I haven't seen this movie in 20 years, but he goes river style. (laughs) And it's a thing. And you were like, no, just no. Oh no. The opposite. We were obsessed. So my brothers and I on the regular will just randomly say river style to each other (laughs) and no one knows what the fuck we're talking about except us because we have seen anaconda no less than like 340,000 times oh that makes me so happy (laughs) so happy j-lo my house was i was gonna say for those royalty checks (laughs) welcome (laughs) uh she was amazing in that oh amazing yes oh my gosh uh, so we're not going to do a Florida cryptid because they're kind of boring. So instead- And just watch Anaconda. <laughs> watch Anaconda. Like, you get it. That's what's happening in Florida. That's what's lurking in the Everglades for you. Like, are yeah. you surprised? No. So instead, we're going back to the wonderfully weird state of Washington to delve into the Bat Squatch. Oh, shit. And yes, that's right. You heard me correctly. Bat Squatch. Half bat, half squatch, all cryptid. Fuck yeah. Sources. WashingtonBigfoot.com, PortlandGhost.com, Pararational.com, WhereWolfs.com, and that's woof like the dog noise, not actual wolves, Cryptids.Fandom.com, and that's cryptids with a Z, and the SalemNewsOnline.com. So often referred to as Washington State's quote-unquote official cryptid, Batsquatch holds an interesting place in Washington State's Bigfoot slash cryptid mythos, and the legend of Batsquatch actually begins with the eruption of Mount St. Helens. So, in case you don't know, after remaining dormant for over 140 years, on March 27, 1980, a series of volcanic explosions and pyroclastic flows began at Mount St. Helens in Skamania County, Washington. For two months, there were a series of earthquakes and steam venting episodes until eventually things escalated and on May 18, 1980, a major explosive eruption took place. The eruption, which had a volcanic explosivity index of five, was the most significant to occur in the States since the much smaller 1915 eruption of Lassen Peak in California. It has Mm. often been declared the most disastrous volcanic eruption in U.S. history. An eruption column rose 80,000 feet or 15 miles into the atmosphere and deposited ash in 11 states and two Canadian provinces. Holy shit. No fucking joke. If I remember correctly, my mom's best friend was living in Washington at the time this happened and literally sent my mom in Florida ash from Mount St. Helens. And she'll have to correct me on this if I'm wrong, but I believe that this is true. I was not born during this time, obviously, but she told me after the fact that her friend sent her ash from Mount St. Helens. That's fucking wild. Crazy, right? Crazy. Less severe outbursts continued into the next day, only to be followed by other large but not as destructive eruptions later that year. 
thermal energy released during the eruption was equal to 26 megatons of TNT. Holy shit. Big boy, big man of Jamma. Not that anyone was surprised, like you know it's huge. Approximately 57 people were killed directly. Hundreds of square miles were reduced to wasteland, causing over a billion dollars in damage. Thousands Damn. of animals were killed and Mount St. Helens was left with a crater on its north side. But apparently that was just the beginning and the massive and destructive eruption of Mount St. Helens had an unforeseen consequence. It had awakened the long dormant creature, Batsquatch. <laughs> I know, it's so ridiculous. <gasps> I uh, love this though. <laughs> it's the funniest name and I love it so much. Something also you may not have known about me. As a child, I was obsessed with bats. Full on obsessed. I had multiple books. They were my favorite Bucky animal for a really long time. We used to go outside and look at them, like look for them. My dad built a bat house and he painted it like a haunted house. And we literally like tried to get bats to come and roost in our little bat house, our little haunted bat house. I mean, with that. all of this seems very on brand though. Right? It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But I love them. They're so fucking cool. So I was all about this when I heard about it. The first reports of Bat Squatch are from 1980 in the Mount St. Helens area. Curious folks, researchers, investigators, or anyone trampling around the blossom were aware from word of mouth warnings that something from the area. It was rumored that some of the people who saw it had snapped pictures of it as it flew around the dust clouds that erupted from the mountain, but obviously none of these pictures have been turned in for scrutiny, so it's been largely debated that nobody actually saw anything and that all of these vague stories were just that, stories. Mm. Reports continued to trickle in, but many of the alleged sightings were labeled a hoax. While the initial reports were sketchy at best, rumors about a large winged creature continued to circulate. Because mm. the first sightings were around the time of Mount St. Helens erupting, many believed the creature came from somewhere deep underground and that the earth shifting during the eruption had set it or many loose. Mm. Others believed a similar story, except of simply being an underground hibernating cryptid, it is believed to be of a supernatural origin and the shifting of the earth open a gateway to hell itself, releasing a demon among us mortals. Oh, shit. While the rumors of the creature continued, it wasn't until 14 years after the eruption of Mount St. Helens, though, that a sighting in 1994 in rural Washington and the subsequent newspaper article officially made Batsquatch part of the Washington State cryptid history. On April 16, 1994, at 9.30 p.m., 18-year-old Brian Canfield was driving a truck home from Buckley to the isolated settlement of Camp One, located in the foothills of Mount Rainier. Suddenly, the engine died and the dashboard lights fell dark. Although he hadn't touched the brakes, the truck came to a sudden and abrupt stop in the middle of the road between the edge of the forest and a clear-cut field. Brian sat in the truck, wondering what was wrong and what had caused it to die, seemingly out of the blue. Then, he saw the feet clawed feet descending in front of him. Then the legs, torso, and chest of the unknown creature came into view. Though they were folded back, it was clear the creature had wings attached to the back of its broad shoulders. Its head and face finally became visible, and Brian said its face looked like a wolf. Oh, shit. Quote, its eyes were yellow and shaped like a piece of pie with pupils like a half moon. The mouth was pretty big, white teeth, no fangs. It had blue-tinted fur and tufted ears. The nine-foot-tall creature landed 30 feet away from Brian's truck with a dust-raising thud. Brian said, quote, it was standing there staring at me like it was resting, like it didn't know what to think. I was scared. It raised the hair on me. I didn't feel threatened. I just felt out of place, end quote. 
Brian is a high school senior known locally as an average normal kid. He doesn't drink or take drugs. He doesn't play Dungeons and Dragons, nor has he ever seen a UFO. However, he remains baffled by what he saw that night. Brian said, quote, it's looking right at me, like in a deep stare, like right through me. It's standing perfectly still, end quote. Oh my God. The huge winged creature stood there for a few minutes, then its fingers twitched and its wings began to unfold. The wings were as wide as the road. It turned its head, looked at Brian, then began to flap its wings. Slowly, it began to rise, but the turbulence of its takeoff was so great that Brian's truck began to rock and sway. The creature then slowly flew off in the direction of Mount Rainier. A few minutes later, Brian's truck just started randomly, and he says he took off as fast as he could. He drove home. Yeah, right no shit. House. Yeah, get the fuck out of there. <laughs> he drove home, ran into his house, and immediately woke his parents. He told his dad to grab the gun and a camera and come with him. While they were getting dressed, Brian explained what had happened. He could barely breathe. His mother said, quote, I could tell something was wrong the way he ran in. His mouth was dry. He was pale. His hair was still standing on end, end quote. She handed him a tablet so he could draw what he had seen. A few minutes later, they went to visit a neighbor, a man who was very familiar with the woods nearby. Together, they all drove back to the spot on the road where Brian had seen the massive creature. Despite their search, they found no trace of the creature. The neighbor said, quote, I know he saw something, but I don't know what it was, end quote. Oof. Brian told his story at his high school the week after his unexplainable sighting. While some of his friends teased him, others believed him, and one friend even helped him with the sketch of the creature. It was Brian and his friends who came up with a name for the creature, Batsquatch. Brian said, quote, I'm really not into this stuff. It boggles my mind really hardcore. I really can't explain it. It's weird. Definitely weird. I don't <laughs> like it. Usually, yes, Brian, it is definitely weird. Usually stuff like this happens to someone else. It did happen. I'm willing to put my life on it. I just have this picture in front of my head, the picture of it standing there. I can't get rid of it. It's just there. I kind of wish it didn't happen. End quote. It, that, you know, that response, it just sounds, well, it sounds silly. It also sounds so sincere. Like, yes. I don't know what the fuck it was. It was weird and I was not into it. Yes. That's all I can tell you. Yes. I, but I'm not into it. Yeah. I believe this kid for his response because it's like, I wish this didn't happen to me, but I can fucking see it so clearly in my mind. Like this is burned into my fucking brain now. Yeah. I believe you, Brian. Same. C.R. Roberts, a local reporter for the Tacoma News Tribune, interviewed Brian Canfield as well as his neighbors and family and was convinced of his sincerity. He said, quote, I believe his story. I believe he saw something that night. I have no idea what he saw. I've spoken with experts on legends and creatures and none know of a being such as this, end quote. While associated with Washington state, there are also reports of bat squatch like creatures from Mount Shasta, a potentially active volcano in California to Shannon County, Missouri to Butler County, Pennsylvania. In April, 2009, paranormal investigator Paul Dale Roberts posted an article on the site Unexplained Mysteries after interviewing a hiker about their strange sighting on Mount Shasta in California. The hiker said, quote, me and my friend were hiking around Mount Shasta and out of one of the crevices flew out this big creature. I mean, this thing was huge. It was as tall as a man, as stocky as Hulk Hogan, and had leathery wings. I believe the wingspan was at least 50 feet from one end <gasps> to the other, which is fucking massive. Yeah. I was holding up my camera, but was paralyzed with fear as the thing flew by. I didn't get a picture. Sorry. 
What do you think this might be? Could it have been a pterodactyl? It was flying or gliding fast. It seemed to have a head of a bat. Think about it, it doesn't have the head of a pterodactyl. I would think it had the head of a bat or maybe more like a fox. The damn thing finally flew into a clump of trees and vanished. I heard you guys might be going to Mount Shasta. If you do, please look out for this thing. If you see it, you will shit all over yourself. I cannot, <laughs> end quote. Holy shit. He's not fucking around, yeah. No. <laughs> you will literally shit your pants, apparently. <laughs> Which I fucking get it. This thing is supposed to be like nine feet tall with a fucking 50 foot wingspan and like ripped like Hulk Hogan. No, I'm getting the fuck out of there immediately. Yeah, that's very terrifying. I mean, I would still rather take that over the giant snake, probably, even as much as I love snakes. It's just like, that's a lot. I mean, same. It's a lot. Anaconda so did, Anaconda put like made an impression. I do not want to fuck with this thing. It's also like, I can like a thing until that thing is so big that then I don't like it anymore. Yeah. Like snakes are co- cool. Yeah. Once they like yeah. fit in my hands, but like when they're big enough to physically eat me, I'm, I'm good then. Yeah. I feel the same way about children. <laughs> <laughs> you got to get rid of them when they're big enough to physically eat you. Yes. I mean, they're great when they're kids and then they grow up and they're like as awful as possible. <laughs> like They're great when they're other people's and I can be done with them at the end of the night. That's for sure. How I feel about children. Aunt life. All right. <laughs> That's good. It's fine. That's what's up. All right. In June of 2015, a family from Columbia, Missouri came face to face with the bat squatch during a weekend getaway to Shannon County. Driving down the gravel road to the Blue Spring Trailhead, the family's mother suddenly shouted for her husband to stop the car. What she saw in the wilderness was something she struggled to comprehend. Afterwards, she took her account to MUFON, and the incident would later be referred to Dr. Emmett Reary for investigation. Dr. Reary interviewed her twice, and his colleague, Gary Hart, interviewed her again separately. Then they got together and compared notes. The picture that emerged from those interviews is as bizarre as it is unsettling. According to Rory's report, she was staring at a winged entity seven to eight feet tall with leathery wings from its shoulders to the ground, black in color with pointed ears on a triangular head. Its yellow eyes stared at her, making her feel very uncomfortable. Dr. Rory and a colleague also searched the area for physical evidence, but nothing was found. In Butler County, Pennsylvania, during the early morning hours of March 18, 2001, on a rural road, a businessman passing through the area witnessed something on the side of the road. He first thought it was a deer and moved closer to get a better view. It appeared to be hunched down and then stood up. The driver saw a very tall, muscular creature. The driver had his high beams on and watched as the creature walked in front of the yellow reflective road sign, then crossed the two-lane road in three long steps and continued to a wooded area. What he saw was a humanoid figure that stood at least eight feet tall that appeared to have smooth, leather-like skin that was either a darker tan or light brown color. He said, quote, this was the freakiest thing I ever saw, and it made the hair stand up on the back of my neck, end quote. The Mm. creature never looked at the witness and was only observed from its side. The head appeared to be flat in the front section and then rounded out, and it looked like there was a bridge on top of the head. The face was flat, and the eyes were not clearly defined, but the man thought they might have been pointed in the corner. The ear that was observed on the left side was long and flat and came up and back and was pointed backwards like a flap. The arms were muscular and a little longer than that of a human. The hands looked more like a claw, but the number of fingers was unclear. One physical trait that stood out were the extremely muscular legs. The witness stated that Mm. it was hard to explain, but the legs did not move like that of a human and looked like they bent backwards. 
Oh so my God. Yeah. It's one of those. Yeah. Oh, that creeps like me out so much. I know. It's like the little demon legs. It's like the little satyr legs. Yeah. It's creepy. No. Okay. Uh-uh. The witness also saw what appeared to be wings on its back, which were tucked into its body, with the wingtips extending toward the side of its head. No unusual sounds or smells were noticed during the observation, which was estimated to have been about seven seconds. As he approached the location where it had disappeared into the woods, it could no longer be seen. Next day, the witness decided to drive back to the location of the encounter to look for any evidence. The ground conditions were not suitable for tracks and nothing was found. Since that initial report was received concerning the strange encounter, it has been learned that other local residents from that same area also reported seeing a similar unknown creature. In 1998, there was another supposed sighting of the bat squatch. However, however, because the incredibly detailed story is anonymous with no location given for the sighting and because it was originally posted on batsquatch.com, most have chalked up to being fiction. The man's story begins with him regaining consciousness on a rocky outcropping where he had landed after a fall. He could not describe the events that led him there, only that he knew where he was and that he was in a bad situation with a concussion and several bleeding gashes. He was barely conscious when he heard a loud, deep, bass-like yell erupt from the road, followed by the blasting of a horn from a semi-truck. He looked down in time to see a lumber truck carrying Douglas Firs slam into a large object in the middle of the road. He thought it was a large stump at first, but the object, upon being hit, bounced into the air, then fell into the canyon below. He said he could have sworn the object was purple and had wings, but attributed the color to his blood-stained glasses and the wings to his inability to see clearly. In an attempt to avoid the thing in the road, the truck braked and then suddenly turned left. The man then watched as the truck began sliding precariously close to the edge of the road, 100 feet (gasps) above the valley below. Oh, my God. He then watched as the rig slowly started falling, trailer first, over the edge of the road. He said, quote, it was as if something had clutched the back of the trailer and pulled it over the side of the logging road. And (gasps) the man realized he had to hike out and get help. But after just a few minutes, he grew weary and sat down. Yeah, dude, you have a fucking concussion. Yeah, I mean, yeah. While he was catching his breath, a large shadow came over him and he saw a large purplish beast descend onto the very spot where he had woken up. It had with it another beast that was battered and not moving. He realized the second beast was the object the truck driver had hit on the road. Oh. I know. He said his first thought was to rush up to the beast and ask it if it would help find out if the truck driver was still alive and said, obviously he hadn't recovered from his head wound. Fortunately, he regained his senses and didn't approach the creature. He described the two creatures as being purple, bright purple. And the larger of the two was 15 feet tall with no tail and huge bat-like wings, the span of which extended to around 40 feet. The head of the animal was unusually small compared to its massive body and it had beady purple eyes. He also noticed that it had four sets of quote unquote hands, one on each of its large wings and one on each of its arms. He said the creature was very frightening to look at. The head of the animal was unusually small compared to its massive body and it had beady purple eyes. He also noted that it had four sets of hands, one on each of its large wings and one on each of its arms. He said the creature was very frightening to look at and could almost be a cross between a large bat and an excessively large furry human. He ends his story by saying, quote, well, perhaps I've mentioned too much. My worst fears are that I will be traced by my email address and someone would know my location, thus making me a laughingstock of my community and ending my rather prestigious position within the city. 
If you would like to hear more of the story, you may email me. However, should you make any attempt to trace my email address, I will deny everything. And mm. the story was signed, The Believer. While Batsquatch is considered an American cryptid, the description of the creature matches that of other cryptids around the world, such as the Aul of Indonesia, a giant bat or primate with wings, and the Orang Bati of South Asia, a primate with the distinction of leathery bat wings. Batsquatch has also been compared to the Mothman of West Virginia, since many cryptozoologists have pointed out the incredible similarities between the Batsquatch and the Mothman phenomenon. In addition to their similar appearance as large winged creatures with blazing eyes, both are said to have appeared during and after a cataclysmic event, and both have the power to affect man-made objects. The initial theories surrounding Batsquatch speculated that it was an underground hibernating creature awakened by the eruption of Mount St. Helens, or that the eruption had basically opened a gateway to hell that allowed a demon to come through to this world. But according to pararational.com, there are two more options for where Batsquatch might come from. While similar to the demon theory, the first hypothesis is that it is an extra dimensional creature that dropped through a rift and got stuck here. If the first oh, sighting, shit. right? That's a pretty crazy theory. Yeah. If the first sighting really was in close proximity to the Mount St. Helens eruption, it seems probable that the force of the blast may have ruptured time and space, allowing something to get sucked through. The other option is that Batsquatch is actually an alien. Considering that Brian Canfield's truck died without reason and restarted after the creature left, just as happens with many UFO encounters, it does not seem completely improbable that a UFO dropped one off to do recon on the area. The author says it's less likely that Batsquatch is a full-on demon or monster of some sort, because if that were the case, then you would expect that Brian Canfield's testimony would include an unnatural level of fear or dread, but he said mm. he just felt out of place. Despite the sketchiness of some of the Batsquatch sightings, others, like Brian's 1994, seem to be more reputable. Pair that with sightings in other states and the similar cryptids in South Asia, and you have the makings of a credible cryptid legend. Of course, it's up to you whether you believe this creature is real or just a figment of people's imagination, but the Batsquatch phenomenon still gains momentum every summer when people tell their spooky stories around the campfire keeping this large but mysterious cryptid alive for future generations. And that is the story of Batsquatch. That, I've never heard of Batsquatch, one. There you go, Pacific Northwest, baby. Look at that. This is an educational podcast, clearly. Also, it, the thing that I, it was reminding me of was of Mothman. Yes. And how Mothman- not just uh, aesthetic, but Mothman is believed to show up when a cataclysmic event yes. is going to happen. So it, it could be that the volcanic eruption, one, awoken, you know, it, it awoke the beast, or that it showed up being like, yo, shit's going to get real, real. Like, by the way, I'm just like here to let you know. BT dubs. BT dubs. Also, I just have to say that Google Docs literally learned the word Batsquatch just for me and to the point that it would suggest it if I fucked up typing it. Like, did you mean Batsquatch? Which like, yes, yes, I did. Thank you, Google Docs, for understanding me as a person. That's like how my texts autocorrect things to work W-E-R-K or Apple teeny. And I was like, clearly. Um, it knows you. It knows me. 
And I don't know if this is a judgment or a, hey, girl, I see you and I'm here for it. I don't know how my phone feels about it, but yes. <laughs> Siri better not be judging you. That's all I have to say. Better not. I'm not here for that bullshit. No, no. <laughs> all right, Monique, do you have a horrifying true crime story for me this week? I did. And, and then he fell down a rabbit hole. No, oh, no, okay. no. I, uh, in, in our last episode, there was a, a, a mini joke about me like stepping my pussy up this week that yes. I kind of <laughs> and uh, you did not need to do I was not right. calling anyone out for anything I was saying right. I was doing a light week that was all I was, that was, all I was saying <laughs> the thing is I do I know I, I know that I adore you stop um but I I do think we've been going a little bit soft on the true crime in the last few weeks uh so I am bringing the thunder Oh, and shit. I am covering Stephen and Carrie Stainer. Before we even get into the sources, I'm just going to give a trigger warning for literally every motherfucking thing. Oh, no. Because this story is crazy and basically awful, just top to bottom. So fun. Yay. Okay. So brace you're yourself. welcome. Brace, brace yourself, yourself. Get your cocktail or whatever accoutrement uh that helps you get through these because this is going to be a ride all right cheers cheers kids <laughs> <laughs> so sources sfgate.com abcnews.go.com goodhousekeeping.com la times modb.com 2020 and our trusty friend wikipedia so let's just jump tits first into this, shall we? <sighs> Stephen Gregory Stainer was born April 18th, 1965, and was the third of five children born to Delbert and Kay Stainer. He had three sisters and an older brother, Carrie, who was four years his senior. They lived in a middle-class neighborhood in the secluded farming town of Merced, California, known as the gateway to Yosemite. Merced is surrounded by almond groves and peach orchards, and is in the shadow of Yosemite National Park. Dell, their father, worked as a mechanic at a peach cannery, and their mother Kay, a daycare worker, was always described as a distant and somewhat aloof woman who raised her children with coldness, which if you're a daycare worker, I don't think that's pretty, aren't you supposed to be like very warm and towards children and shit? Yeah. Stephen was described as a quiet boy who liked to ride his dad's tractor on their almond ranch and loved animals to the point of tending to a fallen owl in one family anecdote. Oh, Car- I know. That's so cute. I know. That's so sweet. Especially since owls can be dicks. Like, yeah, that's right? so sweet. Carrie, the older of the two, was described by his mother Kay as artistic, seldom in trouble, quiet, and a loving brother who enjoyed spending time with Stephen. The boys were still in elementary school when a man named Kenneth Parnell entered the picture. Parnell worked at the Yosemite Lodge located about two hours away from the Stainer home. He befriended a co-worker named Irvin Murphy to assist him in a vile act that would shake the family forever. On December 4th, 1972, seven-year-old 
Steven Stainer was walking home from school on Highway 140, which leads to Yosemite National Park, when he was approached by Irvin Murphy, who claimed that he was collecting money for a church. He approached Stephen and asked him if his mother would be interested in donating. And when Stephen said yes, Murphy offered to drive the boy home. Stephen declined, saying he lived only a few short blocks away, but Murphy insisted, seeing as how it was a sleety, wintry day and Murphy was a grown-up, Stephen acquiesced. At that moment, a beat-up white Buick pulled up and Kenneth Parnell, a Ukiah hotel clerk and convicted pedophile, opened the rear door for the freckled second grader who got in. Parnell, it's so bad. Um, I'm like literally in the fetal position in this chair. Okay. Parnell started driving, and when they came across the intersection, instead of taking a right towards Stevens' home, they continued eastbound on Merced and up Highway 140 towards Yosemite. When Stephen didn't make it home from school, his parents sounded the alarm. Pat Lunny, an investigator assigned to Stephen Stainer's case, said, quote, Merced was the lead police department, and so they really mounted a large effort to search. And they searched, and there was just nothing there. End quote. At some point during the drive, Parnell stopped the car and went to a payphone. When he got back to the car, he tells Stephen that he just spoke to Stephen's parents and they no longer want him. And from <gasps> now on, and from now on, he's going to be Parnell's son. Oh, that gave me chills, you saying that. That's like, that's such a and fucked he- up thing to say to a kid. Because like, it's something that as a kid, you'd be like, okay, maybe that's true. Like, like you don't really and- understand the concept of like, unconditional love for like oh yes and he's seven it's 1973 there's not like you know after school specials about this shit and you're just like I guess so I guess this is the the like shut the fuck up and be polite to the adults and do what they say time yes fuck Stephen's kidnapping completely broke the Stainer family after Stephen went missing Kay became more distant and aloof She became colder to the other children, raising them almost robotically. Del, their father, on the other hand, became obsessed with finding his boy and would often load the kids into the car and take off in search of a new tip that could lead them to Stephen. But the trips always ended in a wild goose chase and never amounted to anything. They didn't realize that Stephen's name, written on an inside garage wall by the youngest Stainer boy, would one day become the most tender of family souvenirs. Carrie was 11 at the time and deeply upset about his brother's disappearance. He said, quote, I remember going out one night after Stephen disappeared and wishing on a star that my brother would come back to me. And I did that almost every clear night from then on. I never did tell anybody about it, but I remember wishing on a star that my little brother would come back home, end quote. Oh, that gets me. That gets yeah. me so hard. Okay. While Carrie's life continued, it was never the same. The then 11-year-old felt responsible for his brother's abduction because he was supposed to take him home from school that day. He also felt forgotten by his parents, who were consumed by their son's kidnapping. Meanwhile, Stephen was undergoing unthinkable sexual, emotional, and psychological abuse at the hands of the Parnell. He took Stephen to where he was staying at the Yosemite Lodge, and that first night, Parnell molested Stephen. He kept Stephen in his room for a week, regularly drugging the boy with cough syrup to sedate and confuse him. The hotel clerk believed the more confused and sedated he could keep Stephen those first several weeks, the better chance he stood to erase his connection back to his family. 
okay, this, in case it wasn't terrible, it's going to get really bad. The 41-year-old began raping the second grader 13 days later on December 17, 1972. After repeatedly telling Parnell that he wanted to go home to his family during that first week, Parnell told the boy that he had been granted legal custody of <gasps> Stephen. Go fuck yourself. Oh, that's infuriating. Yeah. Oh, it's that's like, infuriating. That's it's fucking psychological level. torture. Yeah, that's yeah. a fucking whole other level. You're right. You're right. It's a whole nother level. And it's a level of devious that it's a thing that it just wouldn't occur. Well, one, I'm not kidnapping children, yes. but it wouldn't occur to me to be like, oh no, I like, I adopted you. I, you're not theirs anymore. You're mine. Thank you. You took the words right out of my mouth. Like that would not even occur to me to tell the child that I was just their legal guardian now. And like, this was normal. Like, oh, yeah. all right. He told Stephen that his parents could not afford so many children and that they didn't want him anymore. And even forced Stephen to call him dad. <gasps> what a sick fucking piece of shit. Yeah. That's a whole other level of fucking debauchery. Psychological abuse. Yeah. Ew. Ew, Monique. Ew, period. Gross. There's no excuse. You're not prepared for this entire story. Like at all. All right. I'm breathing. I'm hugging myself. Yeah. It's, there's so much. Like, this is like. Oh, no. We're like in week one. I know. I still can't handle it. This isn't even like tip of the iceberg. Like, you're not, you're not prepared. Fuck. All right. I'm already overreacting, clearly. No, you're reacting the correct <laughs> amount. This is hor- horrifying. This is horrific. For seven years, Parnell re- repeatedly moved with Stephen to different isolated towns in Northern California. They eventually settled in a trailer in remote Kamchi, 300 miles north of Merced. Stephen seemed happy on the outside, and neighbors recalled not thinking anything was amiss with the supposed father and son. Little did they know that Parnell was Stephen's father by day and his rapist by night. But Parnell wasn't exactly the parental type. I mean, if that, yeah. if you couldn't put that shit together from <laughs> what the fuck I just told uh, you. Yeah, <laughs> correct. So he didn't provide Stephen with any of the structure or discipline kids need to thrive in adolescence. By sixth grade, Stephen was smoking weed and cigarettes, regularly getting drunk on cheap whiskey, and had been thoroughly and completely manipulated by Parnell into believing that his parents didn't want him. Stephen had trauma bonded so severely with his abuser that Parnell let Stephen come and go as he pleased, knowing that Stephen wasn't going to run away and he was always going to come back. My heart is breaking for this little boy. Right before his freshman year, Parnell shockingly allowed Stephen to go to high school and registered Stephen under the new name that he had been given and been going by since his abduction, Dennis Parnell. Because they were living in the middle of nowhere, Stephen had to take a bus 30 minutes to the nearest school, Mendocino High School. Despite his circumstances, Stephen flourished and did well among his peers, even becoming known as an all-around happy person. He had a great personality, he was on the football team, and he even had a girlfriend. Quote, he had a great personality, said Lori Duke, Stephen's high school girlfriend who knew him as Dennis. He was spunky. You could see that he wanted to play and be with kids and be normal, end quote. <gasps> that actually blows my mind. Same. For you to suffer something so horrific like that that just damages you psychologically, but you still like have a spunky personality and like kids and like there's this sense of self still despite all of this. 
Like I almost feel like there has to be some sort of dissociation to do. Yes. Yes. It's also just, it speaks to, this sounds very cheesy, but like the tenacity of human spirit, like 10,000%. Oh, like, holy fuck. Steven never revealed to anyone at school that he had been kidnapped. While Steven was a freshman at Mendocino High School, some 300 miles to the south, his older brother, Carrie, was an upperclassman at Merced High School. Even though Carrie showed a lot of promise and talent as a cartoonist and was voted most creative at school, Carrie lived in Steven's shadow. He couldn't escape Steven's story. He couldn't escape being the brother of the kid on the milk carton. And unlike Steven, Carrie struggled in school with making friends and had a reputation as a quiet loner. From that point on, Carrie was often teased about the hats he wore. You always saw Carrie with a hat on, which he wore to cover up the bald patches left by his compulsively pulling large chunks of his hair out. <gasps> Carrie never had a girlfriend in high school. His sexual relations with girls were almost non-existent and were often frustrated by his inability to achieve and sustain an erection. But he had a compulsion with trying to get close to women and be sexual with them but he was unable to develop any sort of interpersonal relationships with women. He started acting very inappropriately towards women and girls. And in one incident, he exposed himself to one of his sister's friends. Dude, just don't do that. Like, Just don't. When neighbor Victoria Flores Tatum was 14 and Carrie was 16, she went to a sleepover at the Stainer's house that was being held by one of his sisters. Victoria said Carrie crept under her cot as she slept and reached up to touch her breasts. Nope. Mm -mm. She told him to go away. And then she said he reappeared in the doorway completely naked, which can you fucking imagine? I was like, this is my nightmare. No. Yes. Yes. She told him to go away a second time. And this time he did. But what the fuck? I don't feel comfortable. I don't fucking sleep anymore. Like, I want to go fucking home. Like, what? Yeah, I'd be like, goodbye. The sleepover's over. I'm calling my parents. Like, are you kidding me? No. Yeah. Yes. Journalist Sean Flynn said, quote, you have one brother who's been subjected to just unspeakable horror for years, but by all appearances, he's a happy-go-lucky, jovial kid with a girlfriend. You have the other brother who's left at home, had no interest in girls, and had no interest in people. And it wasn't just that he was a loner, he was a bit of a creepy loner, end quote. In 1979, Stephen had been with his captor for seven years and Parnell moved them yet again to a one-room shack in the small remote town of Manchester in an effort to stay one step ahead of law enforcement. And it's at this time that Parnell decides he wants another prepubescent boy because he knows Stephen is growing up and he's no longer going to be able to be controlled by Parnell. But the thing that wasn't being said in the 2020 special is that Stephen is 14 now. And Parnell has lost interest because Stephen is getting too old for Parnell to find him attractive anymore. Like the audacity of this bitch, like I'm done using you. I need a younger, sexier kid. Like, Because you're 14 and you're just not doing it for me anymore. Yeah, you're through puberty and so that I'm no longer down. Parnell used the same MO he used to get Stephen while searching for his latest prey. Parnell enlisted Stephen as an accomplice in a a few earlier kidnappings, but they all failed due to Stephen failing to follow directions. In reality, Stephen intentionally sabotaged the attempted kidnappings in order to spare other children his fate, which, yes, yes, 
Good for you, Steven. I fuck yes. Like be like, no, I'm not fucking dragging somebody else into this bullshit. Like I know what fucking this is. No. But he clearly knows what time it is that instead of saying, I'm not gonna do this, he's just gonna be like, Oh, I oh, guess I'm, I'm just not good at doing <laughs> this. Wah, wah. That's like a, a butterfingers with assisting and with aiding and abetting and a kidnapping. <laughs> wah, wah. It's the, I know it's not, but it's the whole like men mentality of like, if I do this shitty once, she'll never ask me to do this ever again. Absolutely. <laughs> and then exactly. I'll just never have to do this ever again because <laughs> she thinks I'm incompetent. Exactly. Uh, but well played, Stephen. Like fucking on point. And he's like 14 yes. and he's putting this shit together. Mm. Fuck yes. Thinking Stephen was completely incompetent, Parnell recruited one of Stephen's teenage friends, a local boy named Sean Poorman, into being an accomplice, promising him drugs and money. What is this dude thinking? Like, yeah. What? On Valentine's Day, 1980. Poorman noticed five-year-old Timmy White, who was playing outside his parents' house in Ukiah, California, and ushered him into Parnell's getaway car. When White refused to get in and attempted to run back to his house, Poorman shoved the boy against a chain-link fence and dragged him kicking and screaming into the car. Parnell immediately went to work in brainwashing Timmy, just as he had with Stephen. Parnell dyed Timmy's blonde hair dark brown in order to mask his appearance from the forthcoming missing child posters and worked on getting the five-year-old to think his new name was Tommy and not Timmy. Ultimately, Parnell would pass Timmy off as his younger son and Stephen's brother. Parnell paid off Poorman with the promised cash and marijuana for a job well done, then ordered him to leave and never speak of the incident again. Unlike with Stephen, Parnell had not sexually assaulted Timmy the first night he was with them, nor did he sexually assault him for the first couple of weeks. This could be because Stephen really took care of Timmy for those first few weeks. And he saw Timmy crying nonstop and Stephen was reminded of his own early tears, pain and loneliness. Stephen watched Timothy suffer the separation from his family and was determined to not see another child suffer the same systemic sexual abuse that he had endured. Stephen decided he was going to take matters into his own hands and find a way to reunite Timmy with his parents. Fuck yes. On March 1st, 1980, Stephen waited until Parnell had gone to work at his night shift at the local motel. That's when the two escaped. Stephen and Timmy hitchhiked hand in hand with Stephen carrying the five-year-old boy on his back when he got tired. They walked great distances until finally passing a truck driver who took them to Ukiah 40 miles away. Stephen originally planned to return Timmy to his parents' home, but the little boy couldn't remember his address, and because it was dark, he couldn't recognize the different streets. So Stephen decided the next best thing to do was take him to the police station. He arrived at the police station, handed them an unharmed Timmy, who has been missing for 16 days, and tells them what happened. When Stephen is being interrogated, Stephen drops the bombshell of all bombshells that even though he's been known as Dennis Parnell for seven years, he tells them not only that is not his name, but that he was kidnapped seven years earlier. And he tells them, quote, I know my name is Stephen, end quote. He can't give them a last name because it's been so long that he no longer remembers it. Full body chills, maybe. At this point, everyone thought Stephen was dead. It was seven fucking years. Not only was he miraculously alive, but he had rescued another boy from meeting his same fate. Stephen became a national hero overnight 
and you see the news footage of him being reunited with his parents and I cannot express just how overjoyed they are and how tightly they hug him like he like he literally came back to life in their eyes yes you know? yes fuck there was the press conference outside the Stainer home and there was just so much joy and jubilation from everyone you see his father is just gripping Stephen's arm almost like to make sure he's real or that he's like afraid to let him go and his sisters all have smiles from ear to ear and then in the background you see Carrie and he is not sharing in the excitement after years of feeling neglected in the wake of his brother's kidnapping not only is Stephen back and alive he's now a national hero he doesn't just have his family's attention but the world's Carrie can be seen in these pictures looking as if he's almost scowling and it's definitely creepy. Dude, like you wished on a fucking star anytime you could for him to come back and now you're gonna be all fucking butthurt about it? Like what? Get the fuck out of here. Within days, Stephen was on Good Morning America with his parents recounting his harrowing ordeal. He told GMA, quote, I couldn't see Timmy suffer. I just didn't think it was right for him to have to go through the same thing that I did. He really didn't have to. There was someone there who could stop it, end quote. When asked why he hadn't tried previously to escape his captor, Stephen said because he had been told by Parnell that he had adopted him, and Stephen believed him. Shortly after, a book and TV movie of the week were made about his life story. Both were called I Know My Name is Stephen. While the TV movie depicted the Stainer boys being thrilled to be reunited, there was nothing to suggest that Carrie was happy to see his brother. Their relationship became very complicated and contentious. Carrie was jealous of the attention and notoriety Stephen was getting. They shared a room and that didn't help matters. They didn't get along and Stephen, having been quote unquote raised without any rules, structure or discipline, didn't understand the rules that he was now expected to live by. He had spent seven years being an only child and now had a brother and three sisters to compete with. Carrie told filmmaker J.P. Miller, who wrote a screenplay about Stephen's abduction, quote, we never really got along that well after he came back. All of a sudden, Stephen was getting all these gifts, getting all this clothing, getting all this attention. I guess I was jealous. I'm sure I was. I was the oldest and all that. Then all of a sudden, it's gone. I got put on the back burner, you might say end quote. But things weren't all sunshine and TV movies of the week for Steven Stainer. He struggled at his new high school where he was relentlessly bullied for the horrific abuse he had endured. While at the time Steven denied being raped, the news had repeatedly alluded to the homosexual nature of the abuse. So Steven's sexuality was constantly under attack because kids are fucking awful that's like so horrible yeah fucking walking sociopaths they're fucking savage again because as if the whole thing wasn't bad enough everything he went through now he has to go to a school where he doesn't know any of these kids it's completely new school they all know him so there's that vulnerability yeah they know the story quote unquote they know the story and then they're just like going around like calling him the gay f-word it's the 80s it no one gives a fuck it's so it's just the fucking worst oh steven steven poor baby no you did not deserve that that would piss me off honestly like oh 
Yeah. And he's so well adjusted for somebody who this fucking horrific thing happened to. And I mean, it has to be jealousy as well because he's on the fucking evening news that kid that you have math class with and like, fuck you. Hero who saved a little boy's life. Yes. You're a national hero. Fuck you. Kids are the worst. They are the worst. worst. Yeah. A close relative claims Stephen confided to having suicidal thoughts in his teens. He never talked to his parents about his sexual assault. Stephen once said, quote, I never reached out to talk about it with my parents and they never pushed to find out, end quote. Following his return, Stephen only attended a few counseling sessions, but no psychotherapy. What? He, he said he didn't need it. Okay. I mean, that's just not true. That's no. just probably no. false. Like you definitely needed it. His parents and relatives believed there would be full healing from the abduction and its sexual abuse in the closeness and love of a family reunited. I mean, which no, that's just that's not how trauma works. That's lovely, but no. Besides, Stephen used to reason, why pay a psychologist a hundred bucks an hour to sit and talk out a problem when quote I've been talking to reporters for nine years. It's a good substitute, end quote. Which, no, those are reporters. No. They're not trained for psychological disorders and mental health. Like they don't have any exactly. background in that at all. Yes, there are people who have not gone through this who need a fucking therapist and who go yes. to a therapist. Yes. So like, honey, no. Like with yeah. all the love that I possess, no, you need a therapist. You need like 10 of them. Oh my God. Also, I am sure there is a therapist out there who would do your work pro bono. Like I am oh. pretty sure, like you're a national fucking hero. Like, I don't think you have to even pay for therapy. I think you're okay. For sure. Steven eventually dropped out of high school. No. I know. Stay in school. Don't do that. He was doing I so know. well. He was like making the grades. Ugh. In addition to all of this unnecessary bullshit, Stephen, who again is still just a teenager at this point, has to face his abductors in court. Ugh. Therapy. For real. You need therapy while all of this is going on. It's very traumatic. Girl. Yes. Irvin Murphy, the man who lured Stephen into the white Buick, was sentenced to, you want to give it a guess? Oh, fuck this piece of shit. Uh, like five years? Ding, ding. Really? Five years for kidnapping. <gasps> mm-hmm. Oh, but wait, but wait. I'm only- jaw-dropped right now. Fuck. Wait. He only served two, though. And what? was released in, he was released in 1983. Five wasn't enough. Are you serious? You seriously let this motherfucker out of good behavior, quote unquote? Like, go fuck yourself. It's the 80s. Wait, it's going to uh, get worse. The 80s is wild, man. Fucking wild. Parnell, the, the main Yeah, the dude, piece of shit, yeah. The piece of shit was convicted of kidnapping and false imprisonment charges, but was not charged with sexual assault. Because most offenses occurred outside of the jurisdiction of of the Merced County prosecutor and because they were outside of the statute of limitations. Oh, Oh, also, in case you don't remember, he had already been convicted of molesting children prior to this. And we just let him go because, yeah, he obviously is reformed. So it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, How how long of a sentence is he getting? 
I'm going to say, fuck, I'm going to say 11 years. Seven. Damn it. I was going to guess nine. And I was like, that's too, that's too fucking low. That's but, fucking insane. Oh no. Was he released in five? I'm going to lose my shit. He sure was. He was <sighs> released in five. So for those who aren't super great on the maths, this piece of shit served less time than he held Stephen captive for. Yes, I was gonna say both of their sentences together equaled the amount of time he was kept captive. Yeah, exactly. And this sack of shit was released in 1985. He should not be released ever because he is obviously a menace to society. He did a crime that he was convicted of and then you let him go and he did it again. Yeah. So don't let him go so he can continue to do more crimes. I think it's very simple. Like I shouldn't be having to say this. Yeah. This is not, this is not (laughs) Amy's controversial take. No, (laughs) don't rape children. And people who do rape children should be in prison. Like you just shouldn't let them around children ever again. Like, sorry. You would think, you would think. Woo. And yet, somehow. And yet. This piece of shit is still out. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Of the sentencing, journalist Sean Flynn said, quote, it was outrageous. There was an out-and-out fury over the sentence. Ken Parnell went back to do what he had been doing for years, end quote. But in 2004, a then-72-year-old Parnell was charged with trying the previous year to persuade his nurse to procure him a young boy that he would in turn purchase for $500. Dude, you're 72. Retire from pedophilia. Like, I don't, I can't. Like, you're you're old. Like, fucking play golf and just your dick shouldn't even work anymore. Like, why are you still trying to fuck kids? Why are you trying to buy a child at 72? This piece of shit. The nurse, however, aware of Parnell's past, reported this to the local police. Okay. Whoo. Good. Good on you. I was really worried you were going to be like, Brought him a kid and got the money. And I was like, God no. damn it. God damn it. No, somebody needed to know what the fuck time it was. Timmy White, then a grown man, was subpoenaed to testify in Parnell's criminal trial. And Stephen's testimony at Parnell's earlier trial was read to the jurors as evidence. Parnell was convicted with attempting to purchase a child and attempted child molestation and was sentenced to 25 years to life, which fucking Finally. I mean, a little late on that, but okay, I'll take it. While Stephen was grappling with life after his escape, his brother was out of high school with his own troubles. After Carrie graduated, he was very lost and was trying to find his footing in life. When his life was starting to spin out of control, he'd take refuge in Yosemite. He would drive up Highway 140 in his pale blue International Scout to Yosemite and go into the woods, get high, and sunbathe in the nude. That sounds pretty awesome. You know? I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. All right. All right. Whatever madness was going on in his head, those two activities would help him clear his mind and give him the peace he so desperately needed. He was also convinced that in a part of the national park known as Foresta, he had seen Bigfoot. Yes! Squatch! You're tying our two stories together. I love it. I fucking love it, Pony. Yes. No, when you said it, I was like, oh, girl, you don't even know. Don't even know <laughs> I didn't know. Story. I'm so excited. <laughs> That's much. <laughs> <laughs> he had, this had a huge impact on him and became an obsession for him. 
any opportunity he got, he couldn't wait to tell people about his Bigfoot sighting. By 1989, the Stainer family was no longer in the spotlight, and the Stainer brothers were both struggling in their own ways. Stephen's celebrity was pretty short-lived, and while he made some money for consulting on the TV movie, and he even had a small role as one of the police officers who rescues the character of Stephen, he, he blew most of the money on cars, drugs, booze, and a motorcycle. By the age of 19, he had piled up eleven hundred dollars in unpaid traffic tickets jesus and that's some eleven hundred dollars in the 80s is a lot of fucking money yeah while he paid them off by raking leaves and splitting logs he kept getting into issues with the law which resulted in his driver's license being suspended while he studied welding at merced college and expressed an interest in law enforcement nothing came of either he held a variety of jobs, like working as a security guard, selling fried chicken, delivering pizzas, but he never had a job that paid any higher than minimum wage. In 1984, Stephen met Jody Edmondson, and something just clicked. They dated for a year before marrying. He was 20, and she was 17. While the two had their fair share of arguments, as is expected when a 17-year-old and a 20-year-old get married, in 1989, life just really started to flow and make sense for the family. They had two children, three-year-old Ashley and two-year-old Stephen Jr., whom Stephen protected with an unusual dedication rooted in his own past. Yeah, no fucking shit. Right? I mean, fuck. He also became a full crusader and activist for one of the things with which he was certainly expert, child abduction. He delivered warning lectures to youngsters at local schools, made appearances at groups and foundations searching for missing children. He testified before the Ways and Means Committee of the State Assembly on a bill that would increase penalties for kidnapping children and another requiring parents to have their children fingerprinted. Quote, Stephen became a representative of the fact that, hey, missing children can come home, end quote, noted family friend Sandra Hawkins, quote, he was something tangible, something for the parents to hang on to in this situation where thousands go missing and only two or three come home, end quote. Stephen believed that repeating his story would sustain awareness of child abductions, never refusing an interview. Yet the telling took its toll. He seemed to think, said Anna Jones, that one day the reporters would just get everything they wanted finally and just go home and leave him alone. But that never happened, and they just kept hounding him. Wow. It didn't matter what happened in Stephen's life. He was always tied to his story. On his first fishing trip back with his father, on the family's first picnic and Christmas, when Parnell was tried and sentenced, when Parnell was released, even when Stephen was married, his story was constantly regurgitated. But his friends said that the burdens of his earlier life seemed to be getting lighter as each door closed on his past. His wife, Jody said of Stephen, quote, he was very proud of who he was. He was just very well grounded for a person that had gone through what he had gone through, end quote. One night in September, 1989, just before 5 p.m., Stephen finished his shift at Pizza Hut. It had been raining heavily and his manager suggested he drive the franchise's pickup truck home. However, Stephen reminded his manager that his license had been suspended and that an accident in a truck might not be a good look for the Pizza Hut business, so he declined the offer. 
So Stephen jumped on his blue and white 1989 Kawasaki EX 500 motorcycle that he had purchased with part of the $30,000 he had received for the rights to his story for the miniseries. But because his helmet had been stolen a few days before, rode off without a helmet, and shortly thereafter, his motorcycle collided with a car pulling from a migrant worker center onto the rain-puddled Santa Fe Drive. The driver of the car, identified by officers as Antonio Loera, an employee of a tomato-picking company, fled the scene. At 5.35 p.m., Stephen Stainer was declared dead of a fracture at the back of his skull. He was 24 years old. Holy fuck. Mm -hmm. He was only 24? He had gone through all of that, and he was only fucking 24. Antonio Loera was later found in Tijuana, where he surrendered and was returned to face charges of felony hit-and-run driving for leaving the scene of an accident and manslaughter. Loera pleaded no contest to the hit and run, which is a felony, in case we forgot. How much did he get sentenced to? How long? 15 years? Three months. What? Three months and one year of probation. The vehicular (sighs) manslaughter charge was dropped after an investigation showed a defective carburetor and loose throttle caused his car to stall when he pulled out of the driveway. Don't give a fuck. You mur- you killed someone. What? And then yeah. you and then you fled. You- Instead of stopping to call an ambulance and possibly saving this person, you just were like, fuck, that was bad. I'm going to keep driving. And you fucked off to Tijuana. And he Ugh. gets three months. Go fuck That's yourself. Insane. That's insane. The, the 80s were a fucking time, guys. Wild, yeah. At the funeral, Jody, now a widow at 20 years old, offered these words of comfort, quote, he's not hurting anymore. Nobody can hurt him now, end quote. She also had the words going home scribed on the lid of her husband's casket, hoping that after everything he had been through in his past, that he would finally be somewhere that he felt he belonged. The funeral was also attended and Angie White and their son, the boy that Stephen had walked to freedom, Timmy, who was 14 years old at the time, and Timmy served as a pallbearer. Ugh. I know. Ugh. It's, one of things that can it's only going to get sad. worse. Yeah, but it's like, ugh. okay. How yeah, is it it's only going to get worse. worse so, I thought we were winding down. God damn it. Oh, no, no, no. Tragedy struck the Strainer family again. December 1990, Carrie's uncle Jerry, with whom he was not only very close with, but also lived with, was shot and killed by a home invader in the home they shared together with Jerry's own shotgun. The case has never been solved. After Stephen's death and the death of his uncle, Carrie's rage was bubbling up. He had a couple of nervous breakdowns and he told a friend about a murderous fantasy. Carrie's friend, Kezi, said, quote, he stated that he felt like jumping in a truck, driving it through the shop, and killing the boss and killing everyone in the office and then torching the place. That's when I told him, you need to go to a Dr. Carrie, end quote. Carrie was losing control, but he decided to seek refuge in Yosemite. Carrie spent the 90s bouncing around from one handyman job to another. Friends and coworkers would later say that he struggled with impulses he didn't understand and was susceptible to age. In the fall of 1997, 
Carrie drove his international scout to a tiny town in it's so in Spanish it's El Portal, but they kept calling it El Portal. So <laughs> I'll call it El Portal. You can pronounce it however you want to. It's El Portal, it. but yeah, whatever. I'll call it. No, you can well, say it. it how I don't want people to be, to be like, "What the fuck is this?" <laughs> okay, El Portal. And landed a job as a handyman at the Cedar Lodge, a rustic lodge outside of the gate of the national park. He lived above the restaurant on the premises, and in 1998, Carrie started dating a single mother of two who was a server at the restaurant. Her older daughter, Lana, then 11, remembered Carrie as being handsome, warm, and a safe person to be around. She recalled always seeing Carrie with his green backpack. If it wasn't on his person, it was always in his truck, and it was always with him like a woman carries a purse. He taught Lana and Mr. how to dive in the lodge's pool, he would give them rides to their house from the lodge in his international scout. And he would always have a new beanie baby for each of them whenever he saw them. Because it was the 90s. Fuck yes! I mean, who didn't have beanie babies? Come on. Girl, I mean, they were supposed to be worth so much, right? So much, yes. <laughs> we're, supposed to, we're supposed to buy an apartment with the Diana beanie baby. <laughs> God. Oh my God. The girls loved it when Carrie would come over. Quote, I loved him a lot, Lana said. I don't know if he knew how much I did. He was a happy part of our life, end quote. But not everyone was here for Carrie. Trish Houts, who with her husband ran the restaurant attached to the lodge that his girlfriend worked at, was not a fan of Carrie's because the then 35 had been spending an uncomfortable amount of time with her teenage daughter. He would do things like stare at Trish's daughter while she was swimming in the pool. So she confronted Carrie and told him, quote, you go towards my daughter ever and I will destroy you. And Yes! Oh, I love a mama bear. I love a mom who like, doesn't give a fuck and will tell you how the fuck it is and is like, no. Fuck, yes, team, Trish, obsessed. Oh, good on this one. By February 1999, Carrie had been at the Cedar Lodge two years. And the winters were very desolate. Not a lot of tourists would visit the park at that time of year. Among the small group of people who went to the lodge to see Yosemite were Carol Sand and her daughter, Julie, and her friend, Silvina Peloso. They had rented a red Pontiac and took a trip to Yosemite. Silvina was visiting from Argentina, and they took the day to sightsee around the park and ice skate, which I didn't know you could ice skate in Yosemite, but apparently you can. Oh, shit. Nice. One night after Valentine's Day in 1999, in the mostly empty lodge, the three had dinner at the restaurant that went to the front desk and rented Jerry Maguire because it's 1999. And show me the money. I got it. Yeah. Show me the money. <laughs> Carrie was walking and saw a lone red car in the lot and the open curtain showed two young women, a mother, and no man. This is a fantasy that he had created in his mind. And this was the night where the years of rage that had been building inside of him would finally be let loose. No. Carrie knocked on the door of the lodge's room 509 and Carol answered. Carrie said the upstairs room had a leak and he needed to come in. Carrie wasn't actually working at the time. He had been laid off for the winter off season, but the guests didn't know that. Carol said, absolutely the fuck not. She had two teenage girls in her room and wasn't going to let a strange man in. But Carrie persisted, saying that if he didn't take care of the leak, they were going to have to move to another room. So Carol eventually gave in. 
Carrie went to the bathroom. When he came out of the bathroom, he pulled out his 22 caliber revolver and told them he wanted their money and the keys to the car. He then took Carol's daughter, Julie, and her friend into the bathroom. When he came back, he tied up Carol with duct tape and proceeded to strangle her with a length of rope. <gasps> when he was done, he wrapped up her body and put her in the trunk of the red Pontiac that she had rented. Carrie then went back and sexually assaulted them. Sylvina put up a fight, so Carrie brought Sylvina back into the bathroom and strangled her. <sighs> Like, this just gets me so much. Like, dude, your own family suffered. Through this. You suffered through this same shit, basically. Like, you know how this fucking feels on the opposite side, and you dared to do this to another person. I. This is where I can only imagine that it's just raging narcissism. Yeah. Like, it's very bad when it happens to me, but fuck you if it happens to you. Yeah. He took Julie and put her in the bathroom in the room next door. He wrapped Sylvina's lifeless body and placed her in the trunk of the Pontiac alongside Carol's body and returned to get Julie and proceeded to spend the next several hours sexually assaulting her. He then told Julie that he wasn't going to harm her, but that they had to go. With her hands duct taped in front of her, he wrapped a pink blanket around her and put her in the car with him. Carrie said he didn't know where he was going, but he just drove. The next time Carrie was seen was 100 miles away from the lodge Sierra Village, calling a cab from a payphone. While they were driving, he talked to the cabbie about what the fuck else but Bigfoot, and that he would show her the cabin in Foresta, by which he had spotted the cryptid. Like, he's obsessed with fucking Bigfoot. After leaving Yosemite, the plan was for Carol, Julie, and Sylvina to meet Carol's husband, Yen, at the San Francisco airport. When the three didn't show up at the airport, Yen immediately called the police, fearing that they may have been involved in a car accident, but they were nowhere to be found, sparking the largest search in Yosemite's history. The Peloso family flew in from Argentina to assist in the search and plead for help in finding their daughter. Investigators retraced the three women's steps and went back to the Cedar Lodge to interview people to see if they had seen anything, and they came across a very helpful handyman. Carrie Stainer, and he didn't set off any alarm bells for the investigators. He was very calm, never got flustered during his interview. He happily opened all of the rooms in the lodge, and he even told them about Stephen's story. Fuck, dude. A month after Carol, Julie, and Sylvina went missing, a hiker stumbled across a burnout Pontiac just a short walk away from Sierra Village, where Carrie had made the phone call for the cab to pick him up. He reported the vehicle to Highway Patrol, but when the authorities got there, they found that the car had been so badly burned, it was difficult to tell its color, make, or model. Based on the remains that they found, there were two bodies in the trunk, but there wasn't much left to identify them. Even though the bodies hadn't been identified yet, Sylvina's mother said that she knew in her heart that one of the bodies was that of her daughter, and sadly, she turned out to be right. Oh. Mother's intuition, shit. While the bodies were burned beyond recognition, they were identified using dental records, which that shit kills me in a way. There was a kid in my class in high school that got into a car accident that it just kind of exploded, that they had to be identified with dental records. Holy Yeah. It is very upsetting. I get that. Yeah. And like the, the thing with this kid I went to high school with, he went out with his wife and his, his mother and his sister-in-law rather. And he was driving back 
no problem. And someone, it was like three in the morning, someone else was fucking wasted, got on the highway on the wrong, they were driving the wrong way and smashed head on Ah. into the car. And it just like completely just engulfed in flames and they had to be identified with dental records. Fuck, dude, yeah. Uh, Mm. The burned bodies found in the trunk of the car were that of 42-year-old Carol Sun and 16-year-old Silvina Peloso. Shortly after being positively identified, there's this interview with Carol's father and he is just absolutely destroyed and it is completely heartbreaking and gut-wrenching to see this grown man just completely break down like that he's just like there's no other way to say it except he's destroyed and you see that he tries to say that as a father you're the one who's supposed to die first it's so oh my god i i i just i don't understand how parents deal with kids with something that happens it doesn't matter how old your kid is like if to me i'm like it's not natural to outlive your child yes i I, I don't know how parents do it my god julie is still missing and now there's hope that she might still be alive somewhere and that she's being held captive somewhere so the police are frantically searching for her and for a week the searchers combed the countryside the roads the ditches the rivers everywhere near the car but again there was no sign and in late march the authorities received a letter with a crude hand-drawn map that shows route 120 the dom pedro reservoir and an X near Vista Point with the words, quote, we had fun with this one, end <gasps> quote, written on the top of the map. Vista Point is 30 miles away from where the burnt out Pontiac was found. They bring out the cadaver dogs and within 10 seconds, the dogs find Julie's body. Her throat had been slashed. Julie was 15 years old. The FBI moved quickly to find the person or people responsible. It wasn't long before Eugene Dykes a meth addict with a criminal history who was currently behind bars for a parole violation admitted that he and his half-brother, Michael Lorwick, were involved in the slayings of the three Yosemite National Park sightseers, and law enforcement quickly took them into custody. While Lorwick professed his innocence, even providing a blood sample to clear his name, once the FBI went down that road, they had complete tunnel vision and weren't looking at anyone else. During all this, Carrie Stainer was still working and living at the Cedar Lodge. He didn't go into hiding. He was living in the open, still an active member of the community. When they were in custody, there was an overwhelming sense of relief throughout the area. The bad guys had been caught and people were safe. Five months had passed and there had been no more murders in Yosemite. Everything started to get back to normal and the tourists started coming back. In the summer of 1999, 26-year-old Joey Armstrong moved into the green cabin in Foresta in Yosemite, which is leased out to the Yosemite Institute for Educational Programs throughout the park, and Joey was living there. Joey was a naturalist at Yosemite. Her job was to take children and teach them the nature of the national park. Joey's mother later recalled asking her if she ever felt afraid, and her daughter told her no, especially since the FBI had the suspects in custody. She had even written about it in her diary writing, quote, the monsters are gone, end quote. There's a back road that connects the Cedar Lodge to Yosemite. And at the end of the road is the green cabin where Joey Armstrong was living. And that's the road that Carrie took one day. He drove his baby blue International Scout to Foresta, where he went often because, least we forget, that's where he had seen Bigfoot. 
He's obsessed. Fucking comes back to Bigfoot. (laughs) He got out of his truck and looked around. While he wasn't there to go hunting, he saw this petite blonde woman by the green cabin packing her car by herself. The weekend was approaching and Joey had been looking forward to the upcoming trip that she had planned with friends. So she had been going in and out of her house, packing up her truck to leave and meet up with them. And Carrie spots her and he sees an opportunity and a switch flips. He goes to the back of his car and grabs his green backpack that contains a 22 revolver, a knife and duct tape, also known as a kill kit. Yes, I was just going to say, fuck. Dude, the yep. little girl even said like she never saw him without his green backpack. Oh. Yep. He approaches her while she's packing up her car and starts making chit chat with her, telling her what the fuck else that he saw Bigfoot not that far from here. And while he's talking to her, he's looking behind her into the cabin to make sure that there's no one else inside and that she is indeed alone. Then he pulled out the gun and put it to her head and told her to go inside. He used the gun to direct her into the house, into the back rear bedroom, where he bound her with duct tape. But our girl, Joey, fights him with everything she fucking has. And he is barely able to overcome her. Even though she's petite, she's fucking strong. Like, she's she's not fucking having this. Like, if she's going down, she's not fucking going down without a fight. Good. Good for you, girl. So the thing is, this was supposed to be super easy for Carrie. In his fantasy, his victim isn't supposed to fight back, but Joey is fighting with everything she's got, and while there's a struggle, he's able to eventually subdue her. He binds her to the point that the only thing she can really do is walk. He picks her up, throws her in the backseat of his car, and drives away. But Joey is still fighting, jumping around in the backseat, doing everything she can to get out of that car. And she ends up flinging herself out of the window of the moving car. (gasps) Joey, you're my hero. Fucking badass. What a fucking badass. And as soon as she hits the pavement, she makes a run for it. So Carrie stops his car, calmly gets out, and chases her. And when he catches up to her, he takes his knife from his back pocket and slits her throat. (gasps) No, I really thought she was going to get away on that one, Monique. I really thought this is how he was going to get caught. Fuck. When Joey doesn't show up to meet her friends, they freak the fuck out because they know something is wrong. They immediately call Yosemite and the search is on. A quick search of the cabin immediately indicates a struggle. There were broken sunglasses on the floor, a red mechanics rag, footprints, tire tracks. On July 22nd, one of the searchers was combing the area and in a nearby stream saw what appeared to be an inanimate object bobbing in the water. It was Joey's decapitated head. Dismembering is so, so intense. It's so upsetting. Yeah. And, and I feel like it was an, it, it doesn't say anywhere, but I feel like it was an extra fuck you. I think so too, because she fought and she, he didn't expect her yeah. to fight. So it was like, oh, you think you're going to fucking fight and like get away from me and get one up on me? Like, no, I will literally cut your head off. Ugh. But like, good for her for like fighting and fucking making it obvious there was a struggle. This was not a fucking like, oh, maybe she just like got up and wandered away and ran off. Like, right, you fucking know something happened. Exactly. Get your your DNA everywhere. Like fucking. Exactly. Create a mess, whatever you have to fucking do. Fuck yes. Joey's still a badass. Queen Joey. Pouring one out to you. You're fucking incredible. Joey's murder sent shockwaves throughout the nation. There was another murder, but this time it was in the actual park. 
people didn't know what to think, were they connected? And if they weren't, then what the actual fuck? The FBI held a press conference assuring the public that they had no reason to believe the cases were related. Former FBI agent John Bowles said, quote, you don't want to cause undue panic. You don't want to cause undue concern until you know the facts, end quote. And like, I hear you. Yeah, but like false. People should be panicking. You haven't caught the murderer who's continuing to fucking slaughter women. Like literally four women are dead. You should be concerned. Yes, exactly. During their investigation, a witness had spotted a pale blue international scout on the same road Joey lived on around the same time she was murdered. And this was the first tip authorities followed up on. The tire track marks left at Joey's cabin were very distinctive marks. And investigators were able to get very clear pictures. So authorities started looking for Carrie Stainer because they think that he would be a great witness to interview to see if he had seen anything. And especially since he was like super cooperative before, as opposed to the first three murders where he had left virtually no evidence because of Joey's struggle, Carrie Stainer left behind a fuck ton of evidence and he fucking knew it. So he knew that authorities would be on his tail. When the police go to the Cedar Lodge looking for him, Carrie's already gone. He packed up his international scout, drove two hours north of Yosemite to Laguna del Sol, a nudist colony. Whatever floats your boat. Because that's where, where this story's going. Cool, 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 cool. After he arrived, he pitched a tent and not that kind. Because uh, I was like, whoa, Monique, immediately? <laughs> Usually, for the record, and I say this because in Tampa, there are an inordinate amount of nudist colonies. I don't know if you know this. and I, I did not. Tampa. I literally used to tell people how to get to my house by directing them to turn left away from a nudist colony because that was like the biggest landmark. I'm obsessed. Um, I'm obsessed. Usually it's old people. So you're thinking, yeah. like, ooh, nudist colony, like sexy. Like, no, it's people you don't want to see naked for the most yes, part. Yes, Totally. So after he arrived, he pitched a tent and went into the bar and restaurant at the colony and started chatting up some locals, one of whom was resident Janet DeMont. Authorities had put out a bolo or a be on the lookout on the news for Carrie Stainer earlier that day. And it just so happened that Janet had seen the fucking news. Yes, Janet. So, So on the low, she immediately called the FBI and let them know that she knew where the fuck Carrie Stainer was because she's a fucking boss bitch. Yes. Yes, Janet. Thank you, Janet. Fucking thank you. Looking out. You were on the lookout and you fucking did your job. Amazing. That morning, FBI agent Jeff Reinick got a call that he was supposed to meet up with Agent Bowles at Laguna del Sol right away. The FBI gets to the restaurant and the manager comes out. They do the whole have you seen this person bit? And the manager says, yes. He's at the end of the bar and he's the only one wearing clothes. Oh my God. The FBI agents walk into the restaurant and Carrie immediately puts his hands up. There's no, who are you? Why are you handcuffing me? And here's the thing. The agents are completely confused because as far as they know, they're just interviewing a potential witness, not a serial killer. He goes along with them quietly, and Carrie rides with Reinick while Bowles follows in the car behind them. And again, no one told Reinick that Carrie is a suspected murderer. So he has Carrie sit fucking shotgun next to him (gasps) in the two-hour car ride back to the FBI office in Sacramento. That's fucking wild. Just like chilling next to this killer, like, NBD. 
Reinick said, quote, it was a very pleasant drive. We were just two guys stuck together, end quote. So they start chit-chatting about music and movies. And Reinick goes, quote, Stainer, did you see that movie about Steven Stainer? End quote. <gasps> and of course, Carrie goes in and he's like, yeah, that's my brother. And they talk about it. And Reinick gives his condolences saying how horrible it was, what happened to his brother. And Carrie gets super emotional and he opens up about it saying that despite what the world expected, life was not happily ever after when Stephen came back. And he gets really upset talking about the horrible things that happened to Stephen. And then he asked Reinick if he believed that the seven years that Parnell got were just. And Reinick says, absolutely fucking not. So the two continue to bond on their two-hour car ride, making jokes. And they're even seen walking into the FBI office in Sacramento laughing because again, Agent Reinick has no idea why they're there. He doesn't know why they're talking to Carrie or what his involvement is, if any. But Carrie absolutely knows why he's there. So Carrie and FBI agents Reinick and Bowles set up the interrogation room and they're eating pizza, which Shut in case you don't oh. yeah, in case you don't fucking know, when law enforcement is interrogating a, a suspect. They don't have a fucking pizza party. No. Because if they did, I would want to be interrogated literally all of the time. Like that would then, be my yeah, favorite thing. Yeah, awesome shit. Yeah, let's go. Get the pizza. Let's do this. FBI agent Bowles said, quote, it's not textbook. It was grasping at straws to figure out where do we start to begin the interview, end quote. And Carrie starts saying how this is going to be his last meal as a free man. Holy He's just, fuck. Just spilling the tea. Red fucking flag. Playful. Yeah. Just like, see what they want. You know, it, it's that thing of like, don't say shit and people like can't handle silence and then they just start talking. Yes. You yes. Know? Yeah. I learned that in a, in a business negotiation tactic that if someone proposes like maybe like a rate that you're not into, if you don't respond, one, they're going to know that you're, you don't like it. But then the other person to like fill the silence and not be uncomfortable will then like start negotiating for you. It's so true. I actually, right before we started this, watched a clip of John Mulaney basically saying the same thing where he was like, if you're on a phone call with somebody and they suggest an idea to you and you don't like that idea, yeah. just literally don't say anything. And then they'll have to be like, are you still there? And you'd be like, mm-hmm. And then just still don't say anything. And then they'll backtrack all of the shit they just said because they feel so uncomfortable with the silence and the fact that they know you're still there and you clearly don't like that idea. So Fuck yeah. that yeah, 100% exactly. works. Then he says to the agents, quote, I can give you closure, end quote. And again, they're like, closure for what? Like, and then he tells them he can answer some questions about Joey and more. And Bowles and Reinick, they just, they don't know what the fuck he's talking about. <laughs> Like they're, they're literally, they, they don't know what the fuck is happening. I'm like picturing Mr. McGee right now. Like, I feel like they're like bumbling idiots. Like, For no sure. offense, I'm sure they're professionals, but like, uh, what is going on right now? Girl, yes. You guys are shitting the bed here. Like they thought he was a witness to something and seemingly out of nowhere, he's dangling a confession in front of them. But first he makes a request. What do you think he requests? Oh no, I thought he was just going to tell them his Sasquatch story. <laughs> <laughs> like but first he had to tell them about the time he saw Sasquatch sure he did but 
What do you think his request is? Ooh, I mean, he's already got pizza, so I don't, does he want a TV movie made about him? Like, what does he want? So, Carrie Stainer, for his confession, has asked two FBI agents, two agents of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, for child pornography. Oh my God. And Carrie tells them, quote, not just a couple, three, four images. I'm talking a stack this high, end quote. And he motioned, because this is not a visual medium, he motions with his fingers a stack that's several inches thick. What the fuck? Which the audacity of this bitch to walk into a fucking FBI office and after getting a fucking pizza party requests a stack of pornography from two federal agents or he's not going to talk? Excuse me, fucking what? Like, Go what? Fuck yourself. Also, like, what? Oh my God. So here's the thing that I learned in this story. You never say no to a request. You put them off. You say yeah, we're going to get to that. I want you to have that. Um, I know you want that, but you know, you kind of like move it down the ladder and you put it off to buy time. So you say, yeah, like, absolutely. We're going to take care of that for you. But in the meantime, Tell what information do you have? Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. You don't be like, no, I'm not going to give that to you. And you'd be like, no, I'm not going to confess. Like go fuck yourself. During the interview, Reinick continues the bond that he and Carrie established in the car ride to get him to continue to talk. And Carrie starts to talk about Joey. He calmly and emotionlessly and in detail talks about everything he did to her. On his confession tape, he talks about tying her up, gagging her and slitting her throat. So a really important life skill that I've never quite latched onto is diplomacy. I don't know how to sugarcoat things. I don't care to. I will burn a bridge like a motherfucker. I'll burn a bridge and I'm still on it. Like I, I, <laughs> I will tell it how it is. I will lay it the fuck out. Yeah. So listening to the recording of this confession tape throughout the entire tape, you hear Reinick say to Carrie, quote, you're doing fine. This is hard. You're being good. You're being brave, end quote. And the thing is they do this because you don't want to be judgmental and you just want to keep the suspect talking. So it turns out I could never be in the FBI. In case I didn't already (laughs) know that, I absolutely could never the fuck be in the FBI. Because you'd be like, you're a piece of shit. What else did you do to her, you fucking motherfucker? How dare you? Yeah. That even if I didn't say it, my face would say you're a piece of shit. (laughs) Yes, mine too. So fair, I would not be in the FBI either. Yeah. Because here's the thing, bottom line, no one is going to talk to you if they think you're disgusted by what they're saying. And throughout the confession, it was important to Carrie to control what the agents thought of him. So he wanted the agents to know that he didn't beat Joey and that he wasn't violent or sadistic with her, which I guess he thinks is somehow better. He had given investigators a confession to the murder of Joey Armstrong, but he had also promised them, quote unquote, and more. Obviously, they weren't going to give him the kitty porn. But because of that, the two agents were concerned that he was going to stop talking. Because remember, they had no idea that he murdered Carol, Julie, and Sylvina. They had two other clowns in custody for those murders. But Reinick turned that empathy up to a fucking 11, telling Carrie, quote, I can already see a change in you. You seem like you're feeling better. Whatever this is that's inside you, 
you need to get it out, end quote. Following a dramatic period of silence, Carrie said, okay, let's do it, and proceeded to recount detail by detail how he managed his way into the room of the three women and how he murdered them. He says how Julie was very calm, she was very cooperative, and did everything Carrie told her to do. No tears, and he rationalized that because she was cooperative, that she wanted him to do all those things to her, as if she had some kind of relationship with her, which go fuck yourself. No, literally no. no. She's in fucking shock is what she's in. Like, what are you fucking talking about? Or is trying to survive of like, shut the fuck up. Don't start a thing. Don't don't make a fuss and get out of it alive. Get out of it alive. Oh my God. Fuck this guy. He recounted that when they were driving, he didn't know where he was going or what he was going to do. But when they made it to the reservoir, he decided he was going to let her go, which of course isn't fucking true. So he took her out of the car, carried her down the path, and he described carrying her like a groom carries his bride over the threshold. No. No, girl. He laid her down on a blanket and slit her fucking throat. After he killed her, he told Reinick and Bowles, this is like, I almost, I feel like the worst of all of it. So he slits her throat and then he gets up and he marveled at the view. What? Like that, he because it's in the middle of Yosemite. He's like, wow, That's isn't it beautiful, beautiful out? The scenery. Look at that sunrise. Yeah, I'm sure she would have loved to have seen it and been alive for that. You fucking murderer. What the fuck? Ugh. So to corroborate his story, he pointed them to evidence and where he had disposed of certain items, like a roll of duct tape, a knife that were easily recovered by investigators. But somehow, the most disturbing confession was yet to come. Yes. How is there more to this? Holy The story's okay. crazy. It's crazy. Carrie told the agents that Carol, Julie, and Sylvina were not his first choice of victim. In his confession, Carrie said, quote, I'd been gone most of the day off the property. I was at a girlfriend's house. And I guess it's this girlfriend and her two daughters that were my original intended victims, end quote. Reinick was so flabbergasted and shocked that he didn't believe what he had just heard and on the tape literally says to Carrie, I'm sorry, say that again, I misunderstood you. And Carrie says, quote, the girl I was seeing and her daughters were my original intended victims, end quote. Oh, first of all, I got chills when you said that. And second of all, like, oh my God, I, I thought, I was like, that's crazy that it was like a mom with like two little girls with her and he also dated a mom with two little girls and I still like never really put that together until you just fucking said that yep the day after valentine's day carrie had decided that that was the day that he was going to carry out his fantasy of murdering his girlfriend who was the server at the restaurant and raping her two young daughters before killing them as well but while he was there the groundskeeper unexpectedly stopped by thus foiling the plan. So Carrie drove back to the Cedar Lodge that night and he was pissed and ramped up and he decided that he was going to go to the hot tub to calm down. But the hot tub was dirty. So that's just another fucking thing that he's pissed and annoyed about. So he decides to take a walk around the property. And that's when he sees Carol, Julie, 
and Sylvina through their open window and makes the decision. The FBI privately spoke to Lana's mother and told her that Carrie had confessed to initially wanting to kill her and wanting to rape and kill Lana and her sister. After finding that out, Lana said, quote, I think at such a young age, I learned you couldn't trust adults. I still have issues trusting people, and I don't know if I'll ever feel completely safe. We're survivors, but it took a really big part of our life away. It destroyed part of my childhood, end quote. He also confessed to having fantasies of killing women and girls when he was just six or seven years old, which- What? Yeah. So this is like way before Steven disappears, like fucked crazy in the fucking head from when he's seven fucking years old. That's Red insane. fucking flag. Yeah. Holy fuck. He told investigators, had they not come back to arrest him, he, quote, would have kept killing until I was caught or killed, end quote. The balls on this guy. Fuck. Right? And here's the thing. If it had not been for Reinick and Carrie bonding over Stephen in that car ride, these confessions may never have happened. Oh, I mean, it was like, I kind of judged him for bonding with him in the car, but like, I guess now that's good. Hey man. But shit, that's so weird too, to like not realize you're bonding with somebody who's murdered all these people and who has like sick fantasies and just be like, oh, it's a guy. Like we're having fun. Yeah. He told me his Bigfoot story. Like, ha ha. Exactly. Jesus. With the evidence and the confession, Carrie Stainer was charged with the murders of Joey Armstrong, Carol Sund, Julie Sund, and Sylvina Peloso. At the trial, Carrie's attorneys allege that their client had been molested by his uncle, the one he had been living with, and the one who had been murdered in a home invasion. They also alleged that a PET scan found several brain abnormalities consistent with schizophrenia, psychotic disorder, and obsessive compulsive disorders, which all of this is alleged. Here's the thing, though. Stephen, who actually was for sure fucking molested and raped, saved people and had a loving relationship with a woman and two kids and didn't fucking murder anybody. So, I don't give a fuck what you fucking, like, you don't do that to somebody else then. If it happened to you, you try to save people from that, from encountering that same fate, you don't inflict it on more people. Yeah, basically. To avoid the death penalty, in September 2000, Carrie struck a plea deal and was formally sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Joey Armstrong. Before being sentenced, Carrie begged for forgiveness from the Armstrong family, saying, quote, I wish I didn't do this terrible thing. I gave into terrible, dark dreams that I had tried to subdue. I'm sorry. I wish I could tell you why. I don't even know myself. I wish Joey was here, but she isn't. I'm so sorry. End quote. A sobbing Carrie told the federal court before his sentence was passed. Go fuck yourself. Go fuck yourself. So Joey's trial was a separate trial from the other three. Days later, he pleaded innocent to the murders of Carol, Julie, and Sylvina. Because this fucking bitch, this fucking bitch. You confessed. What do you mean you're pleading innocent? I think that he's like, I'm nuts. He pleaded insanity. Okay, okay, okay. I don't give a fuck. Fuck you. Yeah, no. Carrie was convicted of three counts of first-degree murder, and in 2002, he was sentenced to death and is currently on death row at San Quentin Penitentiary in California, which I know I'm not supposed to be happy about that, but I am. Yeah. I'm not upset about it. No, I'm fine. I'll sleep tonight knowing that. Yes. I'm sleeping very comfortably about it. 
reporter Ted Rollins asked if Carrie was interested in doing an interview and this motherfucker sang like a canary. He said that he had had fantasies of murdering girls since he was seven and he had been resisting those feelings, almost like he wanted credit for being such a good guy and not murdering women like this entire time, which go fuck yourself. Then he told the reporter, quote, I want you to get a hold of some producers in Los Angeles. I want a movie of the week made about my story, end quote. Like how his brother Steven had a movie of the week made about his story. He wanted the same treatment and he wanted the world to take notice of him, which fuck you. Steven saved a little boy's life. You took the lives of four women. So no, you're not going to get the same treatment. Exactly. Go fuck yourself. Joey's mother said, quote, the investigators told me that I should be very proud of her because she fought. There was a lot of evidence, end quote. Joey's legacy continues on in Yosemite National Park with a group called the Armstrong Scholars, where every summer, a group of girls from the ages of 15 to 18 are brought to the park to spend a week exploring and learning about it, which is exactly what Joey was there doing. That gave me chills. That's so sweet. I love that. It's so good. Timothy White became a Los Angeles County Deputy Sheriff, but died of a pulmonary embolism in 2010 at the age of 30 leaving behind a wife and two young children like Stephen had. On August 28, 2010, a statue of Stephen and Timmy was dedicated in Applegate Park in Merced. The sculpture made by Paula Slater depicts a 14-year-old Stephen holding five-year-old Timmy's hand just as he had when Stephen led the boy to freedom. The plaque on the sculpture reads, Teen Hero, kidnapped in 1972 as he was walking home from school and told his parents no longer wanted him, seven-year-old Stephen Stainer was routinely violated through seven years of captivity. As Stephen grew older, his captor's preference for younger children drove him to abduct five-year-old Timothy White, unaware of the fate now intended for him. Stephen's only thought was to save the new child from unspeakable abuse he had himself suffered. Stephen summoned the courage to lead little Timmy on a desperate flight to safety. Once returned to his parents, Stephen took time to educate law enforcement, school and parent groups on the insidious methods of child sex predators. Stephen died at 24 in a motorcycle accident, leaving a wife and two small children, made this memorial to Stephen Stainer's heroism and to all children victims stand as a beacon of hope to families of children still missing. Stephen Stainer, captured the heart of a nation when he helped another child escape from a pedophile after enduring years of abuse himself and not wanting to see the child experience the same fate. Carrie Stainer will forever be known for marring Yosemite's reputation as a peaceful retreat with the brutal murders of four innocent women. And that is the insane and very long story of Carrie and Steven Stainer. Holy fucking shit. It also just proves, like, it doesn't matter what fucking happens to you. It matters who you are at the end of it. For sure. That was a crazy story. I still fucking can't get over it. Steven, amazing. Carrie, piece of shit. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And then we had, like, the peppered, like, peppered in, like, amazing people in the way, like, uh, Janet, who saw him in, who was chatting, who he was chatting up in the diner, was like, mm, yeah, cool, cool, cool. Um, I'm going to call the fucking FBI because I know they're looking for you, bitch. Yes. Amazing. Like, 
Trish, who was like, um, no, you're creepy as fuck. And you're looking at my teenage daughter. The, I, the one who, yes, yeah. I see you motherfucker. I see you. Everyone else is charmed by your bullshit. Not me, motherfucker. No. Joey. Badass. What fucking a fucking badass. badass. Total badass. Like, and it's one of those things that even though the story, all of it is pretty fucking terrible. It's one of those things that I don't feel gross at the end of it because there are those points of light of you have Steven at 14 years old saving this five-year-old boy and you have Joey being like, fuck you, I'm not going to give up. And because she was such a badass and because she didn't allow this guy to just do whatever the fuck he wanted, they caught him. That's amazing. And it's one of those things that I hate. Not I hate. I just feel the word gets used too much. But they really are fucking heroes. I agree. You know, and without Joey fighting and then because of it, uh, Carrie leaving all this evidence, he flat out said, I would have kept doing it. I just yes. would have kept killing people. Like did not give a fuck. Yeah. <sighs> Crazy. You're right. Crazy. I, I don't feel completely depressed afterward. Yeah. It's not like the Stephen Platel story where you're That like, was a little, yeah. I felt a little, it was, a little down after that. It was a lot. <laughs> It was great. It was good though. This is great. Great start. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, We just hit on our Instagram a thousand followers, which is fucking incredible. Fuck yes. That's amazing. It's amazing. Thank you so, so much. You know, it's so funny because it's that thing that Amy and I met doing a gig and we just talked about this kind of macabre shit and then one day over margs and empanadas we were like do you want to start a podcast not knowing how to do one and now we're at a thousand instagram followers and and listeners message us and send us like their stories it's so fucking cool and it's so rad and it's one of those things that you kind of just don't think is real or that is possible I completely agree. It's yeah. fucking crazy. We actually met on my birthday. I don't know if you remember that, but yes, I can yeah, see that. Especially fortuitous. So, absolutely, I agree. So, thank you guys so much. Please partake of our contest. To reiterate, to enter the contest, all you have to do is leave us a review on iTunes, and then after you have done that, find the post on our Instagram and tag one of your friends and then you could win a free palm reading session by the incredible Ithaskun from Universal Palmistry you literally don't even understand how amazing this woman is holy shit and you get your very own custom made tote from Amy I don't even have one of those this is amazing (laughs) it's gonna be made with love you'll love it of course yeah and if you are like I wrote the fucking review. Where do I tag my friend? You can find the show at another fucking horror podcast on Instagram. You can find me at Pinup Girl Mo. You can find me at Lobotomy, and that's Lobot period Amy. And every six episodes, we do a listener story. So we definitely want all your stories. Send us your ghost stories, your alien stories, your cryptid stories, your crime stories, your weird stories. We want all of them. All the fucking stories. We want all of them. We're obsessed. So you can email us at another fucking horror podcast at gmail.com with a period instead of the you and fucking. And if you're super lazy, you can just go over to our Instagram page and click that email button and the email will pop up. You just got to populate it. Shoot that bad boy over. 
Easy peasy. There you go. <laughs> Words without enough. Boom. Most importantly, you guys got to remember to keep it cute. Keep it creepy. Bye. Bye.